Good morning, everybody. This is harder than it should be. Uh, it's good to see you all this morning. Um, going to be going, continuing our, our walk through Acts. Um, this is an interesting chapter, uh, particularly for me. I didn't realize how much of a challenge and an issue that this has been for me over the years, um, but as I reflected upon it, it just kind of became more and more apparent, and I think it's something that for a lot of us tends to be a struggle as well. Um, we're talking about miracles and faith today. So we're going to see a miracle that happens um, as their um, apostles are going about their business and how we, how we respond to that, how we work into that. And I feel like as a culture, we're kind of working, I used the word deficit for service, but I want to say uh, it's, a, it's a bump in the road. It's kind of a, it's a roadblock for us. Um, when we look through Acts in the New Testament and the letters that um, Paul was writing, it seemed pretty apparent that miracles and wonders were happening all the time. It was just all around them. They were being encouraged by them. They were regularly seeing these things. Just out of curiosity, how many of you would describe your current life as just constantly full of miracles? All right, keep track of who these people are. They're the ones filled with great faith. Um, and that's actually going to be a really poignant thing that I'm going to be hitting on, is that faith is really, really vital if you want to see miracles in your life, if you want to see these things happen. Um, and so I want to talk about first the roadblock for us, the thing that's getting in the way, I think, for the majority of us. And so we've spent a lot of time when we're going through Genesis giving you context into someone else's culture so you better understand the word. I'm going to give you this morning context into your culture so that you can better understand the struggle that we all have with this word. And so I took a very short 500-year journey through our history, and I wanted to share it with you this morning, um, because this is actually what's getting in our way. Uh, about 500 years ago, so year 1500 all the way through year 1789 is known as the early modern period, and it is highlighted by a few very specific things. Uh, first of all, globalization, the idea of the whole world finally kind of realizing where everybody is, and then followed by mercantilism, so we're finally trading ideas and resources with the whole world around, not just your closest neighbors. And then we moved into having experimental science and secularized civic policies. And so this really came about with the Age of Enlightenment or the Scientific Revolution, which is right smack in the middle of the early, early modern period. And the focus on it is natural law, liberty, progress, toleration, fraternity, constitutional governments, and the separation of church and state. It's kind of these things started to flow out of these ideas. And there was a really heavy focus on the value of happiness and knowledge obtained by reason. Now, just in that, so that time period, 1500 to 1789, probably sounds very similar to right now. Because this is the defining point that started changing the culture as we know it, and it simply evolved from this. Because right after that, we have the Industrial Revolution from 1760 all the way into 1840. You got water power, you got steam power, you got machines everywhere. You have entire factories that become mechanized. And we just see the human ingenuity at its height. There's going to be no end to the things that we can do and the works that we have together and all of these incredible accomplishments of mankind. 
And then, then we, this takes us into the late modern period, which is in 1800 all the way to around 1945, just around the end of World War II. And it's really highlighted by some very specific elements. And it's an increase to science and technology. Representative democracies are everywhere. And this one's really important. Mass literacy and mass media. Not only is information available everywhere, but finally everyone can access the information. You can actually read. And so you can take that information for yourself for the first time in human history, really, with this idea of mass literacy. Also within this, we have women's rights came about and the abolition of slavery. And so this idea of that we are actually all equal. We're all people. We're all in this together. So really, all of these are actually really good things. These are not bad things. I'm not talking about like we should be like really down on what's happened in these highlights over the last 500 years. But this moves us into the now postmodern age, also known as the age of information, where you had the advent of the internet, you have the advent of the transistor, which is it's a little device that's on every single computer chip, and there's thousands of them. They make it feasible for us to have all the modern conveniences of our age. They don't exist without transistors. And then you have the Cold War. And so these are real major defining moments from the end of World War II to now. And it's highlighted by a few attitudes. That of skepticism, self-consciousness, reprisal of modern conventions and the dismissal of, gra of the grand narratives. And I read that and said, what is that? <laughs> and so this idea of these grand narratives, these idea, this what is out there that explains everything. This is why it works and this is why it is the way it is and it's tradition. And people in this time and age have said, we're going to step on tradition. We're going to throw all that out. We're not going to buy that anymore, and we're going to redefine everything. And that now, the state of reality is contingent on the observer, the individual. These are the attitudes and things that really highlight the current time we're in. And it's all been this um, development over the last 500 years. So 500 years ago, there's definition of trust. You had to have a lot of trust in people and things. You did not have access to information. You did not have the, maybe even the ability to read the information, even if you had access to it. So a lot of information is simply passed down in tradition. We do it this way. We've always done it this way. It works this way. Well, why does it work this way? Don't ask silly questions. Just do your job. It works. There was a lot of trust to develop. And then, comparatively to everyone else around you, you had to trust that they knew what they were doing. Because I don't know how to do it, and I have no way of figuring out how to do it. So I have to trust in others around me as well, those other experts. Whereas nowadays, we don't have to trust anybody. I have a degree in Wikipedia. I'm an expert in everything. And then we move from that area of trust to the area of reason, which is actually a really good thing. This is actually why it works. And this is the way that we can find better ways that it works. And this is how we can all work together to make things better. It's, a, it's a, actually a really good thing. Our society has heavily benefited from the age of reason, from the age of asking questions of why and enhancing and making things better for everybody. It's a good thing. But it has developed into not only is this the age of reason, but we're going to take it a step farther of that I'm going to go beyond this. And because I have access to the, all this information and I'm the expert now and I have the ability to reason and I have all of this, I'm going to define now what's even real. 
And I'm going to actually shape my own personal reality now, which starts going in the wrong direction. This is the poor outpouring of the age of reason. But within all of this, so we take all of that good, that scientific method, the process of discovering our world, the process of information, the process of all of this, all these good things, and then you say, hey, I've got a miracle. And a miracle, by definition, is an act of God that defies reality. Well, that mindset of I'm operating my world Everything I input has to be through reason, has to be repeatable, has to be through this method, does not really work with a miracle. Because I can't define a miracle. I can't repeat a miracle. I can't quantify a miracle. I can't explain a miracle. And so this gets in the way of us accepting that it is a miracle. And then we have the idea of, well, that miracle is also dependent on our faith. What's the definition of faith? Straight from Hebrews. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So we look at the scientific method. It's developed by repeating things happening, taste, see, touch, hear, smell, observable inputs. Well, this is the assurance of something that's hoped for. You don't have it yet. Conviction of things you can't even see. How on earth do you bring these things together? Because your entire culture for the last 500 years has been permeated with the age of reason, with the age of questioning everything, the age of not believing something unless it can be proven. How do you align that up with it? It's impossible to please the God without faith. Faith requires you to believe without definitive evidence. There is a certain point with anything having to do with the spiritual realm that we cannot go past this within our physical reality. Beyond this is faith. And that's the leap, that's the step every person as a believer will have to make. And that's the spot that that is our roadblock. That's the thing that's getting in the way, is that you actually have to take that step. And so we're going to talk about the difficulties in that. Because if you're like me, as I saw, most of you did not raise your hand that your life is filled with miracles. That means that roadblock's been getting in the way. That means faith has been a challenge. Believing in the supernatural, jumping into your life, the Holy Spirit doing miracles throughout the day to day hasn't been happening. The roadblock's getting in the way. We're going to talk about faith today. We're going to talk about miracles today. Acts 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, which happens to be three in the afternoon, which really threw me off because their culture begins at 6 a.m. Um, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John a about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So this really sets us up for the idea of this is a regular day. This is a day like any other. They have temple worship every single day. 
At three o'clock is the daily hour of prayer. They made a regular practice of day by day going to the temple together. There's nothing different or out of the ordinary about what's going on. The beggar is carried here every single day. It's life as usual. We all have this. We all get up in the morning. We may have, we may start with breakfast. We may hurry out the house. We go to work. We go to school. We go to the gym. We go about our regular lives. Now the question is, as we're going about our regular lives, are you regularly expecting anything supernatural to happen? Or is the expectation that nothing really is going to happen? It's just a regular day. Nothing ever happens. Those things only happen in those really miraculous moments when you're at church and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit descends and it only happens in these special places at a special time. But my regular old life is not when miracles happen. But that's just not true. Because the reality when we look at the apostles as they went about their lives, in their regular doing, they're regularly anticipating that God's going to break through. It's a different mentality as we approach our life. Out of uh, Matthew 24, it says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Are we just going about our regular lives, never expecting anything, just thinking someday Jesus is coming back and then I'll be there and then it'll be done? And if something happens along the way, well, that's great, but I really don't think it will. I fear... That's kind of how the regular rut, the regular doing, the day by day, the mundane, that's the attitude we tend to take on. Even if we're not even actively thinking about that, we're just going about our life. We're just doing everything we always do. As opposed to having the mentality, as I go through my day to day, I'm waiting for God to move today. Something, something might happen today. I'm looking for opportunities today. I'm listening to the Holy Spirit today. I'm seeking God in everything I do. I'm praying today. Lord, give me that moment. Let me see it. Let me be ready, God. I have faith that you move today. It's a different way of approaching our lives. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So I'm going to roll back a moment and just, I think we reread so much of scripture and we just bypass the moment. We don't really let it seep in what's going on here. That Peter saw him and said, you're going to rise up and walk. He's never walked a day in his life. Imagine the moment you're sitting on the ground. You've never walked a day in your life. I know if, if you, you're in you haven't been in that situation, it's hard to put yourself there, but just let's try to suspend reality if we can. You've never done this before. 
and someone's saying, now's the time. And we're going to find out later, he's 40 years old. He's been at this for 40 years. It's never, nothing has ever happened. He's lived the mundane day after day after day for 40 years. And one day this guy says, you're going to get up. And he grabs you by the hand and he yanks you off the ground. But suddenly you're not falling over. For the first time in your life, you're standing. And you're probably not doing a good job because you've never done it before. And so when he says he's clinging to them, it's because he probably doesn't know how to walk very well, but he's figuring it out and he's leaping and he's shouting and, look at me, look, I'm not falling. It would be a commotion. It would be palpable. They would be on fire. What is going on? That's the guy. What's happening? Is this a trick? What's going on here? There would be a real energy to this moment, particularly if you had, you had been there. You'd been there for 40 years. I know that guy. He's never walked a day in his life. This isn't some trick. This is wild. What's going on? This is the moment we're in. And what Peter had said to him right beforehand is, what I have, I give to you. And I think a lot of times we may consider ourselves that. I'm not Peter. I'm not one of the apostles. I didn't I didn't get out of the boat when he called me, and I didn't give up my whole life to follow after him for years, and I wasn't there through his crucifixion, and I didn't see him raised from the dead, and I'm, I'm not Peter. I'm not one of those guys. I don't have what he has. And you do. When he says, I'm going to give you what I have, what is that? Because Peter's just a guy. He could be brave, he could be courageous, he could be strong, he could be kind, he could be sweet, he could be all the things we are, but he's not God. He cannot make somebody walk, but he can give them what he has, and the same thing is what you have. You have access to the Spirit of God. You have faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And without God, it's all impossible anyways. Out of John 15, it says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So every single one of us here has exactly the same thing that Peter has. You have Jesus. You have Almighty God. You have the Holy Spirit. And that's all you got. That's all we have to give. And so be of great courage. Because Peter's doesn't have something just crazy that none of us have access to. He doesn't have the special juice. He doesn't have special knowledge. He's got the same thing we do. But I wonder at ourselves, do we approach life that way? Thinking, I got everything the apostles did. My life can look just like theirs. Hopefully without the dying at the end of it the way they did. But everything else, it can be just the same. 
I got access to the same God. And when we looked around at all the people, there was wonder and amazement. They were shocked. They were in awe. And it made me ask, well, what's the reason for the miracles? Is that the reason for the miracle? Why do these miracles happen? Why are they recorded? When do they happen? What, is there some specific to that? Is there something to that I'm missing? Maybe that's why I don't see them as much as I'd like to. Out of John 10, it says, I'm not do- if I'm not doing the works of my Father, don't believe me. This is Jesus talking to the crowd. They're, they're questioning him. He's saying, hey, if I'm not doing things on behalf of God, then don't believe what I'm saying. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. This idea when a miracle happens, and you might, you might know somebody, you might have been that somebody, that you questioned this faith, you questioned this Jesus person, you weren't sure if you believed, and you see a miracle happen in front of your face. And it's not, I heard from a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who said it happened to his sister. It's not that sort of situation. It happens in front of you. When that miracle happens, even if you, I'm not so sure about this Jesus, but I can't explain that. It just, it was miraculous. It, went, it was beyond explaining. That's the reason for the miracle, is to take that person who has faith, but doesn't know really where the truth is yet. And they're saying, I have to start questioning things now. I have to start reconsidering. I have to start perhaps believing the claims that have been made here. And it in that way, builds our faith. But it doesn't come at the absence of faith. Because here's a big question. Would you believe it was a miracle? When we, when we hear about miracles, even if we see something that, it's, it's, I can't quite explain that, but is our first response when we hear about something about that, or we see something that we can't quite explain, is the first response, it was a miracle? Or is the first response to question a bit? When someone says, it was a miracle, they were healed, is your first response, to hallelujah, praise God for the miracle, or do you say, well, what happened? <laughs> give, me the, give me the details around this so I can assess for myself whether that was a genuine miracle or not. And I would claim that more often than not, it's that one. That we don't just believe right away. We're a bunch of skeptics. It's defined our society. Now, I think a lot of us would love to see a miracle, and we think it would build our faith. But I want us to consider something. Out of Luke 16, Jesus tells a parable. He tells a parable about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had a really great life, and he was really selfish. The poor man had a terrible life, and when they both die, the poor man is taken to Abraham to be comforted in heaven, and the rich man goes to hell. And it says this, Then I beg of you, Father, to send him to my house. This is the rich man speaking to Abraham. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I think a lot of us with that roadblock, myself included, we get to this point where you're on the edge, you're going to have to take that step, and you go, well, if I see the miracle, 
then I will have the faith. But what you've just done is said, I need proof. And if you require the proof first, it's not faith. So what's being said here, even if you see that, you are still not going to be convinced. The faith comes first. And that's going to be the thing that gets in the way. That is the great challenge. That is what needs to be developed between you and the Lord. It needs to be um, grown within you. And that's really, really challenging if it doesn't come naturally to you. It most certainly doesn't come naturally to me, trying to build that faith. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety? We have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So before we really unpack all that, I want to go back to the very beginning of this when it says, and Peter saw it and he addressed the people, is that he didn't address the people until they were all in wonder and amaze or rushing and asking for things were going on. The point of what Peter did with the beggar wasn't so that he would have a greater ministry with the rest of the people. No, in that moment, what he was doing was being obedient unto the Lord and was helping one person for the sake of one person. Out of Matthew 18, it says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of that one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I think what can get in our way, and this is not about faith, this is not about miracles, this is about your ministry and what you are doing on behalf of God, that we get in our way that I'm not doing enough, it's not big enough, I'm not reaching enough people, it doesn't matter enough. But the reality is, is one sheep is enough. If you are being obedient unto the Lord in the task that he has called upon you, it doesn't matter the size of that ministry. What matters is your obedience and faithfulness to God. Because one is enough. And then he addresses the crowd afterwards and he says, why are you surprised at what you've just seen here? This has been going on for the last three years, Jesus' ministry. He's been healing people. There's been all sorts of things. Why are you surprised now? You made your choice. Now, John 3.19, it says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Don't be shocked 
when God, when Jesus Christ, ends up being everything he said he would be. The proof has always been before you. It's simply we've denied what we didn't want to be true. And this is actually speaking of us in the world. Before belief, for those that they've heard it, but they don't want it to, they don't want that reality. I don't want that change. I don't want to have to face that in my life. So I'm going to deny it. You may know people in your life right now like that. You may have been that person yourself. But here we are now believers, and yet we still find ourselves shocked when something miraculous happens. And it should not be so. And this all boils down to our faith. So we're going to relook at that definition right out of Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Lifetime struggle. For many of us, it will be the entire lifetime of struggle. It's one of the biggest things I have issues with. I came to understand and know who God is because he's the best explanation. It was not because a miraculous moment happened in my life where I really felt God speak to me and my heart just cried out to him and Lord, be my savior. It was looking at life and going, there is no better explanation than God. When I look at the world and everything I know and everything that it is and the miraculousness of reality... And the more and more we find out, the more and more I'm convinced by the proof of the reality that's around me. And that's what brought me to the Lord, that there's no better explanation than Him. That's not a lot of faith. That's a lot of knowing. But the one part of faith is that at the end of the day, I can't prove it. I can't prove that God's real. I can't disprove God's reality. I can look at this and go, this is the best explanation, so I'm going to take a step. And it's a little step, but it's enough. It's the important one, is accepting that he is God. He is everything he said he was. If everything is recorded here is true, which I believe it is, then Jesus is Lord, and I will accept him as my God. Because I know there must be a God, so you're it, Jesus. We're going to have to build a relationship now. And that's been about the last 15 years for me, is building that relationship, building that faith in that person around who I knew the God already to be. I had to build the faith. I had to build the faith around things that I'm going to have to step out in obedience and things that I don't know. And that's hard. I know for a lot of you that's probably hard as well. And the next verse I'm going to read is just like a gut punch. And in Matthew 17, and Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. They were praying over somebody. They couldn't cast the demon out. Jesus is super frustrated by them. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was instantly healed. I think we're in the moment, well, you're Jesus. I'm just a guy. (laughs) And the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. I had the thought, how big is a mustard seed? So I found a photo. That's a finger that it's on. That's the size of a mustard seed. Saying, if you just have just that little bit, nothing 
will be impossible for you. And I think about life and I think about the things that have gone on and the things about the, the wonders and the miracles that I haven't seen that I would like to. And Jesus says, if just that much, you could see everything you could possibly imagine. I thought, it's convicting. And it's this struggle of, I don't have a lot of faith and I would like to have more. How do I do this, Jesus? Because there's a reality out of Luke 8, 48. He says, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Luke 17, and he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Luke 18, 42, and Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. It was faith that made the people well. When Jesus went about the towns and villages, the places that didn't have a lot of miracle happen, happens, miracles happen, were the places where there was little faith. So faith is intrinsic to this happening. Us believing first before the miracle happens. Believing when we pray for things that it will happen. Not doubting. Anybody ever pray this way? Lord, I pray for healing, but whatever your will be, God. It's a cop-out prayer. I don't know what's going to happen, but just make something happen and we'll just believe you're in it, Lord. It's, it doesn't take much faith. What takes a lot of faith is to keep praying and keep praying and keep praying and believing that it's going to happen and we're not going to move over there and it would be so easy to move over there, but I'm going to stay right here because I'm believing that God's going to have a miracle come through. I believe I heard his voice. I'm going to stand on this. That's hard. James 1 says, let him ask with faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. I need to think about that. Oftentimes in our prayer, Lord, I pray for this healing, but if it doesn't happen immediately in this moment, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to take some Advil and then I'm going to go over here and I'm going to have a drink of water and then I'm going to take a rest and I'm going to have this and I'm going to do all these other things that I'm going to try to solve the problem on my own if the prayer wasn't immediate. I'm not going to actually stand in faith for longer than a couple of seconds. And that's the idea of being tossed to and fro. Depending on what happens, you're going to do something else. I'm going to fix, I'm going to figure out some other way to do it because obviously, well, God must have just said no and I'm just going to keep on moving on and taking care of my own thing. I'll start with a prayer and it'll help me feel a little better about the situation, but the reality is my faith is just small. Super guilty. It's not a condemnation on any of you. I'm just sharing about my daily life. It's a reality of what we must face. How do we work through that? How do we move beyond this? How do we develop greater faith? One of the things we're told about in Mark 9 was a man who was basically at his wit's end. His son is being possessed by a demon. I believe it was the one who was giving him seizures. And he's heard about Jesus. He's heard about these miracles and he wants something. So he's going to try. So he brings his son and he says, Lord, would you heal him? And he says, do you believe? And he says, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. I believe, but I doubt. It's honesty. It's honest to be about where I'm at. Goes to Jesus, he says, I want to believe, and this is where I am. And what did Jesus do? He healed his son. 
God meets us where we're at when we honestly bring ourselves before him. Lord, this is, this is where I am. I know I don't have a lot of faith. I would like to have more. I'm going to start putting myself out there for I'm going to bring myself before you, and I'm going to try to have this faith. I'm going to try to stand before you and simply believe. And he meets us. Now, does that mean that everything you pray from now on is going to happen? No, it doesn't. But does it mean that we should still believe it will every single time? Yes. That's the difference in the faith. Is that I know that sometimes God's answer is no. But I also know that if I don't believe what I'm praying, it's probably always going to be no. But if I want it to be yes, I need to believe every time I pray. What will help us in this? What of Romans 1, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. When you find yourself in life in that moment where my faith is so small for this situation, I just, I don't think it's going to happen. I just, it's never happened before. They failed every single time. There's all these things that are getting in the way. I'll pray, but I really, I just don't think anything's going to change. In this moment, remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself of what you already believe. I believe that there's a God of this universe. I believe that he is unimaginable in scope and yet still wants to know me as an individual. I believe that he got Mary pregnant immaculately. That's quite a thing to believe in. I believe that he was born a baby and then was a little boy and then was a teenager and never sinned during any of that time. Miracle. I believe he grew to a man, and I believe he called people after him. I believe he led a sacrificial and sinless life. I believe he went to the cross for my sake and endured the shame and endured the lashes and endured the, the spitting and the being crushed and the being stabbed. I, I believe in all of that. I believe he died, and I believe he rose on the third day. And by his death is the propitiation for all of my sins and then I am set free by him. I already believe that. I surely can believe they can be healed from a cold. I already believe all of that. I surely believe that God can come through in this situation with a job. I already believe. I can believe in this too. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Would you stand with us?